Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. Uh, in fact, uh, this week, uh, maybe my life changed. Maybe my ship came in. Uh, um, yesterday I got up and um, checked my email, and you'll never guess who I got an email from. I got a friend in high places, didn't know it. It was a Nigerian prince. <laughs> All right. Here's what it said. My name is Prince Dua, you want to believe me? A Nigerian prince, and I need your help. My family's fortune is in danger of being stolen by merciless rebels. I am desperate to partner with you to transfer $20 million out of my country. For your help, I will give you $2 million. Please send your bank account number and social security number immediately. Well, my heart went out to this guy. <laughs> He's obviously desperate, uh, merciless rebels. Um, and I'm not stupid, though. I knew this was a chance of a lifetime, so I responded immediately. <laughs> Bank of America, 0689, so on, Social Security number. Uh, do you need any initial info? I wanted to cover all the bases. He replied right away, almost as if he were waiting for my email. An American credit card number would be nice for incidentals. And I knew right away I was dealing with a professional. You think about these princes being the big picture kind of guys, but this guy, was he didn't want anything to slip through. My confidence was growing every moment. So I wrote back, MasterCard, 467. Also, I used the B of A on Simpson Street. Asked for Dorothy. She's really nice. I didn't want anything to go wrong. P.S. I haven't told my wife. I want her to be surprised. <laughs> and then this guy... I think he was tracking with me. I mean, I felt like a vibe with him. He wrote back, trust me, she will be. <laughs> so I thought about this for a couple of hours, and I, I have to admit I got a little, little bit of cold feet. So I wrote him back one more time. And I said, sorry to bother you again, but could you send a recent photo so that I know that you really exist? He did. He sent back. I don't know. I felt like I kind of knew this guy. So my trust went up. Thank you. The Nigerian Prince scam started back in 1990. It's been going ever since. I couldn't find any recent data like this last year, but in 2018, um, Americans gave $70,000 to this scam. And scams overall were like something like $26 million. 
So why do we fall for these kinds of things? Well, there's a several reasons some people have speculated. One is he, he uh, pulled on our heartstrings. We want to help the guys desperate, merciless rebels. We want to feel good about helping somebody. Another is the international intrigue. There's some adventure to this, uh, helping someone out on a big matter like this or participating in something big. Then there's, of course, the, the money. I pondered about that $2 million. What would I do with that $2 million? First thing I would do is watch, I'd march right into the North, North uh, Mecklenburg Library and pay off those overdue fines. <laughs> Freedom. And then I'd buy a Lamborghini. That's what we want. Money, we, we think, and especially in our culture, we feel like money is going to buy us something much more than just the tangible objects. We feel like money is going to buy us um, prestige or uh, notoriety or popularity. When I drive up in my Lamborghini, look over my shades at you, you're going to think I'm really somebody, or at least that's what I hope. More than likely, you're going to wish I was out of that Lamborghini and you were in it. But there's another reason we fall for these scams that isn't talked about too much, and that is because despite our skepticism, we really hunger for something more. And we intuitively know that we need help with that, that we can't pull it off on our own. When you get older, this will happen more and more. You'll start to feel that dependency, that you can't make life work in the way that you envisioned it that you can't make life turn out like you wanted to. Your hunger for life exceeds your ability to make it happen. Now, that's not the main point of the sermon, but that might be the biggest thing I'll say today. Human hunger exceeds your ability to make it happen, or another way of saying it is human capacity exceeds human capability. A client of mine she and her husband are in their 70s, and they're about to move out of their home uh, and move into another state uh, for a retirement center, one of these uh, progressive retirement centers. And I was asking her about it and how she felt about the move and leaving her community and where she had lived for so many years. She said she had had a memory of her mother. Her mother had been gone for 20 or 30 years, and she had this memory of the day that she went, the afternoon, late afternoon, that she went to pick her mother up to take her to hospice. Her dad had already died, and she was the only child there, and she went there alone and, um, to get her mom to take her to hospice. And the image she had in her mind that she was telling me was the door frame, the front door, and she was behind her mom, and her mom was walking out the door into the evening light to get in the car and go uh, to hospice, away from the home that she had known for 40, 50 years, away from her belongings, away from everything. And she said her mom was standing there. She was still ambulatory. She was standing there in the silhou silhouetted in the door frame. And her mom had on, she said, she had on this thin nightgown or, or house coat. And in her hand, all she had was a little cloth pouch with some toiletries. She didn't look back. 
She made her, made her way down the steps, leaving behind all that she had built and worked for and lived in and remembered her whole story she was walking away from. Scenes like that that you'll have off and on throughout your life with increasing frequency, you know that there's a dependency that you have that you've been somewhat denying. Things like death or failure, an illness, an accident, a betrayal, and you find that you can't make life feed you like you want it to. And in those times, you scramble, you're disoriented, you bargain with God and with others, you get angry, you blame others, you blame yourself. You want life, and you can't make it happen like you want it to. You want someone to love you, and you can't make them do it. You want to belong, and you can't buy your way in. Perhaps you want forgiveness, and you can't demand it or earn it. It has to be given to you. That's the way it is with most of life. The things that matter the most, you can't, you can't make happen. Next time, you, next time you offend someone and things aren't right with your relationship with them, go to them and say, look, I know things aren't right, but I'd like for them to get back together. Here's $20. Could we be okay? Well, they may take the $20, but things won't necessarily be okay. You can't buy the things that you most want. So the dilemma, your hunger for life exceeds your ability, but you spent your whole life building the illusion that you can. We don't want to admit our dependency on God the giver. Now, this wasn't always true. In the Garden, in the Garden of Eden, the way it describes the Garden of Eden at the end of chapter 2 in Genesis is that they were naked but felt no shame. Naked but felt, that's how it described paradise. Naked but felt no shame. And the way I read that is that Adam and Eve were dependent, but they knew it and they were okay with it. They had no shame over it. But we do. We don't like, we don't like it when someone corrects us. We don't like it when we, uh, our credit card comes up uh, deficient. We don't like it. We're ashamed, we're embarrassed, and we start scrambling. But it wasn't always that way. But Adam and Eve wanted more. They wanted to be like God. And I'll read that, that they no longer wanted to be dependent. They didn't want to be derivative anymore. They wanted to be on par with God. They wanted independence, and they got independence. But they also found themselves, they were still, still naked, and yet they were very, very afraid. They didn't ascend to be more than human. They fell and became less than human. That is, they lost their joyous ability to trust. And with that loss came the immense burden of trying to make life work on our own. And so it is with us. Secretly, we want to return to the garden. C.S. Lewis calls it the inconsolable uh, longing. We're homesick for Eden. We're homesick for that time when we knew what it was like to be dependent on God. And so when we get an email from a prince, we want to believe that we've found a friend in high places. We want to believe that someone is there for us. We want a friend. We know that we're not big enough, so we want that. Well, today we're reading a passage that in a few verses talks about uh, the Prince of Heaven, the true Prince. We need a friend in high places, and only the Almighty can fill our 
eternal-sized hunger. So when I read those passages, I thought of that uh, verse from um, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, that hymn, where he says in verse 3, I believe it is, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Now this is uh, basically the application. I'm going to give the application now. When life, when, 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 when death, I should say, when death's cold hand touches you in all its forms, disappointment or failure or hurt or despair, that's the time to ponder. It's not a time to go fill up your hunger with something else. It's not a time to go shopping. It's not a time to uh, drink or eat. It's a time to ponder. When you're disoriented, invite disorientation. I know that sounds counterintuitive. When you're disoriented, that's when you know, that's when you remember that you're not big enough and that you need God. So Hebrews 1 through 4, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, describes such a friend, and he stands in sharp contrast to Prince Do You Wanna. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these verses. I basically made a, made a grid system, put the verse down the side, put the earthly pretend prince on one column and the true prince on the other, and we're going to compare and tra- contrast. That's what we're going to do. So... The first verse, it's really three sentences, four verses. The writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but he's writing to a Jewish population most likely, not long after uh, the death of Christ, maybe 40, 50, 60 years. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So the claim here is pretty audacious. God has spoken to us, not by the prophets of old, but by his son. Of course, the earthly prince was speaking to me too. He reached out. He reached out through email. But the big news is that God's own son has reached out by his presence. Now, if God speaks, that's the biggest news you'll ever hear. It's bigger than the news of, a, say, a pandemic or an economic overturn, or a war, or a great celebration. It's even bigger than an alien invasion. God has spoken. Someone from the outside has entered our world. It's really a crazy claim. It's crazier than getting an email from a prince that God has visited. And by the way, there's people that were still alive at the writing of this that had witnessed this. They could be asked, They saw saw and been with Jesus. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed an heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So, Prince, do you you wanna? It's hard to pronounce those foreign names. His heir to a national throne, supposedly, and a family fortune of 20 million. He will succeed his father, and his heir will succeed him. Jesus, too, is an heir, but not to a nation, not to a continent, not even to a hemisphere, 
but of the cosmos. Now that's a, that's just crazy talk like this. Uh, this man who walked the earth, who walked the dust of the earth, made the dust of the earth, owns the dust of the earth. Not 20 million, but a cattle on a thousand hills. Isaiah 40 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. That's the prince we're talking about. And he will not be succeeded. He made the cosmos. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. He's transcendent. If we met Prince Dua, we would show respect. We might bow or curtsy. But if we met this king, what happens in the scriptures is people fall down. They fall backwards. Isaiah says he was undone, like unraveled, when you meet the real king. Rudolf Otto is a, was a philosopher, I don't have the date, 1800s, I guess. And he wrote about, um, it's a Latin term, I hope I pronounce it right, mysterium tremendum in fascinitis. Sounds like a condition, doesn't it? I got that fascinitis. But what it means is, uh, a trembling fascination. It's the experience that we have when we meet the other, when we meet the God, when we meet God. It's not like we meet someone great, we're maybe intimidated. This we're undone, like a moth and a candle. We're fascinated with it, but it burns us as well. Fear and awe mixed together. He called that the creature feeling, the creature feeling. We don't have that feeling very often. Maybe you remember it from growing up. Maybe you remember it when you first started thinking about who God was and his infinite. It's a mighty and fearful thing. And that's the claim that's been made about Jesus, our prince. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This just gets more and more, doesn't it? He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he sustains the universe. Uh, that's crazy talk. People driving by here, and their son asks them, what are those people doing in there? Well, they believe that a man created the universe and visited us. Oh, really? And it goes back to his Marvel comics. Uh, that's what we're claiming. Now, the earthly prince, supposed earthly prince, is more like a guy named Harold in Toledo who's got a laptop in his parents' basement. He isn't radiant. He isn't shining out. He's actually trying to pull in. He's trying to hook you, manipulate you. An exact opposite of a lover and a giver. He's a taker and a thief. Now, all earthly promises, whether they're scams or not, if they promise that they can fulfill your, earth, your heavenly hunger, they will end up stealing your life. You think about an alcoholic, some promise there that the alcohol will make him more fun or have friends, ends up stealing his life. But the same is true sometimes about a career. 
we think it will make our life or make our inter internal destiny, and it ends up taking your life away from you. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is the opposite. He emanates the glory of God. He shines it out. I am the light of the world, he declares. God is love and brings that light of love to the world. He is not a, he is not a thief. He's a giver. And he's been giving all along, according to this verse. He brings or upholds the universe moment by moment. Every moment of your conscious life, conscious awareness and conscious experience, he is sustaining. He does this through the word of his truth. The false prince doesn't uphold anything except for you. He holds you up. By a lie, all the world's promises to fill your eternal hunger are lies. God, Jesus, is a giver. And what does that make you? It makes you a receiver. A receiver, and there's no shame in that. Next sentence is really the biggest one of all. It won't sound like it. It's almost an afterthought, the way the writer writes it. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of God. After making purification of sins, just, he just mentions that. Uh, Jesus makes purification for sins. The earthly prince doesn't purify or cleanse. He muddies, as do all earthly promises. They tarnish you. My new Lamborghini will transport me, but it won't transform me. It won't deliver. After the, after the earthly prince um, writes you and you bite, or whatever promise it is, it ends up muddying you, not cleansing you. But this, what Jesus did, purification of sins, is bigger than making the world. I know that sounds weird. Making the world requires power and creative imagination, but to forgive someone, to purify for sins, is moral work, it's justice work, and in God's economy, it costs more. It's easier to build a birdhouse, for example, than to forgive someone. Heck, it's easier to build a whole house than to forgive someone who's really hurt you. So, so it was easier for Jesus to build the universe than it was to make atonement for sin. To build the universe requires power. To atone for sin requires a blood sacrifice and an alienation from his father. After this achievement, he sits down to continue making advocacy for you. We know from other passages what Jesus does when he sits down at the right hand of God, of God the Father. He advocates for us. He's there pleading for us. He's there uh, intercessing for us. He's saying, those guys are mine. Those guys, I took all the debt out of their account and put it in mine, and I took all the righteousness in my account and put it in theirs. They're okay. I can't lose them. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our advocate. After Harold in Toledo sits down, he writes another email to somebody else. After Jesus sits down, he continues to be an advocate for us. We have a friend in high places forever. 
The last verse, he's talking here about having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent as theirs. What that's referring to is that and the, the problem that was going on among these believers where they were looking back to the old covenant, uh, Moses, and also maybe worship of angels to provide some kind of cover for them. And here he's proclaiming for the reasons we just said that Jesus is more is superior to the angels and to the old covenant because of the reasons we just said. So what can the Almighty do? He can remake you. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the advocate. He's the Almighty himself. What can Jesus do? Well, I'm going to read a uh, warning to you about what Jesus can do first before I make the promise. This is a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis borrows a, an idea from George MacDonald and talks about what God wants to do with you. And he says, imagine yourself a li as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally. That does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that he is, is that he is building a di quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little college, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's a little better than uh, paying off your library fines and getting a lot Lamborghini. Um, you get made into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God yourself. Think about the story I told you about the, the woman who's taking her mother to hospice and she was outlined um, in that door frame with a light shining through that thin gown on her way out of her life. And what we want to ask the question is, what can the Almighty do if with his love he befriend thee? What the Almighty can do, because he's creator of all things, he can turn that woman's sunset into a sunrise. Because he owns all things and upholds all things and the heir of all things, he can replace that little pouch of toiletries with a heart full of treasure. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God, he can take that housecoat and clothe her with a robe of weighty light because he's the God of life and the God of resurrection. He can renew that dim gray woman into a radiant and unashamed child of God. That's what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Amen.